Some years ago, my mother and I went back to visit our old house. It was the house I grew up in, so I knew that house the way that children tend to know houses. I had hidden in every closet, and I had climbed every tree. And I loved that house the way that children tend to love houses. I had spent so much time there. I knew it so well that to this day, it's the first place that pops into my mind when you say the word home. Well, we saw immediately that a lot of things had changed. The house was painted a different color, and my favorite climbing tree had been cut down. And when we ran around the back of the house and peered over the fence, we saw that the beautiful jasmine that had grown next to the patio was gone. And then there were the handprints. When my brother Dan and I were very little, my dad poured a concrete slab for a garden shed, and Dan and I put our hands in the wet cement and wrote our names there. Well, the slab was gone, and the garden shed too. Really, the only thing that was familiar at all was the big back lawn, where I remember Dan and I spending summers running, shrieking with glee to the sprinkler to keep cool in the Texas heat, and we play kickball and tag. And I do also remember that my brother spent the bulk of a fall back there, trying very hard to catch a squirrel to keep as a pet. Using a trap made out of a shoebox, a stick, a piece of yarn, and a pile of acorns, he was not successful. Well, the memories were nice, but after about 30 minutes, we'd had enough. We were done. Perhaps it's true what Thomas Wolfe says that you really can't go home again. That no matter how much you wish, it could be so. You just can't turn back the clock. A woman named Mary Magdalene discovered that on the morning of the first Easter so long ago. She wanted more than anything to turn back the clock. She wanted to go back to the way it was when Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing before the crucifixion. That was so terrible. She was there, you know. She was at the foot of his cross with his mother. The rest of the disciples, they all ran away, but she stayed to the very end. She saw him take his last breath on earth. And she also watched as they took him down and wrapped his body in a cloth and put it into a tomb hewn out of the rock and then rolled a big stone in front of the opening to seal it. Then, on the third day, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, she made her way back to the tomb, hoping to anoint him, to show him honor, respect in that way. But even in that dim light, as she approached the tomb, she could see that something was wrong because that big stone had been rolled away. The tomb was standing open, and she could only assume that his body had been taken away. She was so upset, so full of grief. All she wanted was to honor this person who was her teacher and her Lord, and now someone had taken away his body? Why would they do such a thing? 
Were they so afraid of him in life that death wasn't enough? They had to steal his body and take it away somewhere? She was beside herself. So she ran. She ran and ran and ran in that early morning light, and she got two of the others, and she brought them back with her. And they looked into the tomb, and they confirmed her fears. It was empty. Oh, she began to weep then. She wept and wept and wept. They tried to comfort her. They tried to lead her away, but she wasn't having any of it. She just stayed rooted to the spot, much like she did when she stayed rooted next to the cross. She wouldn't leave. Well, they made their way home, but after a while, she decided to look into the tomb herself. And when she did, and her eyes adjusted to the darkness, she saw two angels inside. Woman, why are you weeping, they said. And she said, oh, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. She's so grief-stricken that she really can't even think straight. She doesn't seem to react at all to the fact that there are two angels hanging out in the tomb, and it doesn't seem to occur to her that they might have something to do with the fact that the body is gone. Oh, she's in shock. Well, she turns to go then, and she bumps right into him, but she doesn't recognize him. We can understand how that might happen, right? We've all been so full of grief before that we can't see for the tears. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? And she says, oh, thinking he's the gardener. If you have carried him away, tell me where you put him and I will come and get him. And then he says her name, Mary. And she knows that it's him. My teacher, she whispers. And then he says the most interesting thing. He says, Mary, do not hold on to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. I find that fascinating, friends, because there's nothing in the text to tell us that she was physically holding on to him, and yet through the centuries, artists have depicted her that way, you know? Reaching out to grab the sleeve of his robe or slumped on the ground next to him with her arms around his knees like a child who's just discovered they're going to be left alone with a babysitter. But I don't think there's any physical touch at all going on here, friends. No, I think he can hear it in her voice. He can hear it. How she just wants everything to go back to the way it was. How she wants him to be the way he was so they can be the way they were. When it was so familiar, not frightening like it is now. And we can understand that too, can't we? Certainly can today in this situation in which we are living. 
when we're under stress, when the future seems uncertain, it's natural to respond with fear and cling to the familiar, wanting to backpedal as fast as we can into the past. And friends, I, I think this is why our culture glorifies youth. Think about our obsession with youth. And yet we want to deny death. Going so far as to try to avoid using the word at all, instead we prefer to say that someone has passed away. <sighs> but no matter how hard we try, no matter what we say, no matter how hard we try to avoid it or deny it, the future will come, friends. And Jesus, the one who loves us more than anyone, doesn't want us to be afraid of it. No, he wasn't going back to Mary and the others. He was going to God, and he was taking the whole world with him. He was blazing a path to eternal life because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We don't have to be afraid of the future anymore, you see? You know, I read once that the great Irish poet Seamus Haney, on his deathbed, said just three words to his beloved wife just before he died. He whispered to her, be not afraid. I can't think of more powerful words to say in that moment, can you? Then be not afraid. Those are biblical words, you know. We read them over and over again in Holy Scripture. Again and again we are told, be not afraid. Do not fear. Our God who loves us so much does not want us to live in fear of the future, and because of the resurrecting love of Jesus Christ, we don't have to. He has opened the path to eternal life. Do you see, friends? This is the great message of Easter, the great power of Easter, the great assurance of Easter. Victory is ours through him who loved us. Be not afraid. Louis Valbrecht was a Navy lieutenant and Lutheran chaplain who served with the 27th Regiment during World War II. Valbrecht spent the bulk of the war in Europe in the most dangerous places near the front lines. Well, once he was in a foxhole with a Marine waiting out an artillery barrage, when the Marine struck a match and lit his cigarette and then held the match out, lit still in front of Valbrecht's face before blowing it out with a great puff of air, that's life, isn't it, Padre, said the Marine. Mm, said the chaplain, no, you're wrong. Do you remember those little trick birthday candles we used to have? You know the ones where they'd be lit brightly on the cake and you blow them out, think they were smoldering and dead, turn away for a moment, 
and then turn back and find out they were still lit. They had never really gone out. They were burning brightly. That's life, Mac. And don't you ever forget it, said Valbrecht. My friends, the great proclamation of Easter Day is that we don't have to be afraid because of the resurrecting love of Jesus Christ. The great proclamation of Easter Day is that ultimately all will be well. And I know as we live in the midst of this pandemic, that is an astonishing thing to say, that is a radical thing to say, but I want you to know I believe it with my whole heart. I stake my life on it, and I pray you do too. Because Jesus Christ is risen, we do not have to fear the future. And if we can remember that, then we can do anything. Live in hope, move mountains, forgive our enemies, change the world. Ultimately, God's will, not ours, is done, and his will is always good. Christ is risen, friends. Christ is risen indeed. Be not afraid. Will you pray with me? Most loving God, we give you thanks for the resurrecting love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He has opened the path to eternal life, and by faith in him we know we are saved and we don't have to be afraid. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.